Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. I know some of you weren't here last week, so we missed you. Good to see you back. Uh, for those of you who are new, if you don't know who I am, I'm Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. I haven't been teaching that much lately for whatever reason, um, but I'm back. So uh, good to see you. Hopefully it's at least okay to see me. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Jude, we're going to get right into it. So we're in the book of Jude, second to last book of the New Testament. We're calling this series Once for All. Okay, and the name for the series, it comes straight from the text, from the third verse of this short but packed book. Jude says in verse 3 that he's writing this letter. He found it necessary to write appealing to his readers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Real Christianity, true Christianity, the real religion of God. It was established by Jesus Christ. It was preached by his apostles and it was delivered to us in the word. Okay, there's something that we're, we're supposed to hold on to, to, to cling to, something we're supposed to uh, try to preserve, to defend, and even if necessary, fight for. It's the truth. It's what Jesus has given us. So we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13 today. And uh, as we've said, Jude might be the most neglected book in the entire New Testament. And one of the main reasons is it's a difficult book to understand. There's a lot of things in here that might sound strange or even weird at first. If you were here last week, uh, I think Kenny had maybe the hardest passage in the entire book. Uh, but the book is filled with difficult things. And Kenny did a good job explaining a super difficult text clearly for us. Um, honestly, though, I, I kind of feel like the, uh, the difficulty of Jude makes it more interesting. I don't know if you feel that way. If not, it's okay. It's almost done. Uh, hopefully you can get something from it anyway. Uh, but we have a more, uh, another interesting text for us today. So let me read. But because the, the book is short, I'm going to start in verse 1. Okay, and then I'm going to read in verse 13. We'll pray and then we'll get into it. Let me read, starting in verse 1. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God and Father, or God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursuit unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the angel, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now this is our text today. Woe to them, for... They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray simply that you would speak through your word this afternoon. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would correct us, even rebuke us by it. 
but ultimately all that we might be built up into men and women of God. God, I pray that you would give us faith that that's what we need. I pray, God, that you would sanctify us. God, I pray that you would fix our eyes upon Christ. I pray that this time would be all about him, not about us. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. I uh, recently received an email. In fact, it was on Monday that I received this email from a lawyer named Frank Williams. And uh, normally it's not a good thing when a lawyer emails you. And he said he urgently wanted to talk to me particularly. Um, but he said, don't worry. And he kind of gave me this, this backstory. He says, he said that he represents or represented this client who has recently passed away. Okay. And this client uh, has the same last name as me. Okay, so he said, I wanted to reach out to you because my client just passed away. I've been trying to find extended relatives to kind of leave stuff with, but I couldn't find any. And my research has led me to you. Okay, now my name is in my email address. And then he drops the bomb on me. He says, his client left behind $12.7 million in a bank account. And if he can't find someone to give this money to, the next of kin, then it's going to be seized by the bank. And I'm the last known relative. Okay, forget Stan. Okay, it's me. (laughs) I'm the next known relative. So will I accept this money? That's what he wants to know. Will I accept this money as the next of kin? Now, I just wanted to let you guys know that this will be my last Sunday. I'm a millionaire. I'm retiring. No, it was obviously a scam. Hopefully you guys know that, but it was a scam. Google didn't even send it to my inbox. I was clearing out my spam folder and I found it in there. But here's a question. Okay, a question for all of you. I could tell some of you knew where this was going even when I first started. The question is, how do you know when something is a scam? Like, how do you know when something's off? What are you looking for? What kind of tips you off that this thing is not real, that it might be a predator trying to get your personal information? Maybe you heard about certain scams from others, I'm guessing. You've heard about this one before, the Nigerian prince. Maybe you are just generally a suspicious person. You don't think that people would just give you money for free. Maybe you had to learn the hard way. And I know some of us have had loved ones, or even ourselves, right, where we have fallen for something, fallen for someone's ploy, someone who wasn't honest, and they took advantage of us. The question is, how do you know when something's a scam? Now, for me, I read this email very carefully, just because I'm greedy, right? No, I'm just kidding. But I, I, I was curious about this email, and it'll become apparent in a second. But this email in particular, I opened it, and it seemed, one, too good to be true, right? No one's gonna leave. $12.7 million to some random person. Uh, And then, of course, I had to send over my personal information, like a copy of my driver's license, even my passport. So identity theft was an issue. And then Frank Williams, Frank Williams, whatever his name is, he tried too hard to be trustworthy, and that was a red flag. At the end, he said, please understand that there is zero risk to you. I want you to know that this will completely work in your favor. I was like, okay, is this the Hunger Games or something? But the main thing that tipped me off, the main thing, was actually the first three words of this email. Even the subject header. Remember, he said, he made this whole point to talk about how we had the same name, right? I I don't have a common name, maybe. And there's this relative that has the same last name as me, and he's been looking. He can't find out who it is. It's all about my name and how he's done extensive research But here's what the first three words were of this email, strangely enough. Dear Eric Lau. So Eric, you're rich, man. Please share some money with me. My name is in my email address. So I don't know how this happened. I guess we're on the same like Zoe Dallas website. That's what happened. Dear Eric Lau, I want to let you know that you are a millionaire. Scams can be funny like that. I forwarded it to Eric, actually, by the way. I said, you might want to see this. Scams can be funny, but they can also, they can also be devastating, like I said. Right? Scammers, they do hurt people. Scammers make tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, of dollars a year off unsuspecting people, people who are well-meaning, people who are maybe a little bit naive to how evil and predatory some people can be out there. You, you guys know how it is. Scammers are always elevating their game. 
Uh, you get phone calls uh, that sound real, robocalls, and even from real people who say, hey, you know, you have credit card debt, uh, this is Citibank, and I want you to call back and give us some information so that we could stop scammers, but they're trying to scam you. Maybe you get emails from well-intentioned people. Maybe they hacked your friend's email address. So you actually get an email from your friend that says, I'm stuck in England or something. I need you to wire me some money. And because you're well-intentioned, because you want to help, because this person is your friend, you respond. It's not just strangers on the Internet, too. Some of us or our loved ones we've been taken advantage of in real life. It's not just by professional scammers. Maybe by neighbors or supposed friends or even by people in the church. People who took advantage of you. They wanted something from you. That wasn't your friendship. It was your money or it was your time, your resources. They told us one thing, but it didn't turn out to be what they said. Maybe they even sold us on an outright lie. Now, okay, Jude is about false teachers and false teaching. We've established that. And at this point in the letter, some of us, if we've been around every week, we might feel like it's getting a little bit repetitive in the book, right? I get it. Watch out for false teachers in the church. If there's some pastor saying Jesus isn't God or give me all your money or he's blaspheming angels, then I'll just run away. Or maybe you're newer to church, but you've been turned off by too many messages like this, where it's just Christians fighting over kind of obscure doctrinal details. And you feel like this is the weakness of the church. The Christians are always battling and squabbling over stuff that doesn't really matter at the end of the day. How does this help? That's what you're wondering. Or maybe you're feeling a little paranoid now about, about false teachers. You've been online, you've been on Instagram, YouTube, and you're like, wow, there's a lot of false teachers out there. Or how do I know if this person is legit or not? The truth is, false teaching is everywhere. It's important that we spend a lot of time on this, and not just in the pulpit. Right? False teaching is not just from false teachers who are officially given the title of pastor or preacher or doctor. It's when a group of people in the church, let's say, are stirring up some controversy or division, and they want you to take a side. Or it's when someone tries to pull you into a scheme that sounds too good to be true, shaped like a pyramid. They say, if you join me in this, then you will also be rich. It's when someone gives you bad advice. And sometimes they're well-meaning. Not everyone who gives false teaching does it intentionally. Not everyone is a false teacher, uppercase false They just give you something that is not true, something that leads you astray in the end. Anything that leads you down a bad path, that's what Jude has in view here. So the unfortunate reality is false teachers and false teaching, they are everywhere. So we need to learn how to recognize what's false from what's true. But the good news is Jude is actually giving us the way to recognize it. He's going to help us out. See, in our passage today, Jude gives us, he talks about a lot of stuff, okay? He references three Old Testament uh, people, uh, and not the most well-known, okay? Maybe we know Cain, but then he talks about Balaam and Korah, a little obscure, but when we dig into it, we'll see what he's doing here. And then he rattles off all these metaphors and images, right? He talks about like wandering stars and dead trees in autumn and hidden reefs at your love feast. It's very poetic and very opaque. It's not the easiest thing to understand at first. But let me just put it out there in the beginning. What Jude is doing is he's really giving us the tools, okay? He's equipping us with better eyes to see through those who might lead us astray. False teachers and false teaching all have certain things in common, and we'll kind of see that here. We're going to break down the text into three parts, okay? There's three verses, three parts, three points. First, the pattern, okay? The pattern, Anything and anyone that would lead you astray from the path that God would have you walk on, they all have a common pattern. They have a common pattern. It's like with snakes. Okay, now I'm not a snake expert, um, but I've learned a few things here and there from like kids' cartoons and stuff. Um, but snakes, some snakes have the same colors as other snakes. Some are venomous, some are not. And the way you can tell the difference usually is by the pattern of those colors. So, for example, scarlet king snakes, which are generally harmless, they are red and black and yellow. 
Coral snakes, which are deadly if they bite you, are red, black, and yellow. They have the same colors to the untrained eye, which is mine too. They look the same. And yet, the pattern is different. And there's a rhyme that people say that helps you remember the difference. Red touches yellow, kills a fellow. This is for free, guys. Red touches black, venom lack. Now, in the moment, I probably just stay away anyway. Right? You might not remember the rhyme exactly correctly. But the pattern of the colors tips you off to the danger. You see that? Look at verse 11. Judah starting with a pattern, and he roots it in the Old Testament. He says, woe to them. Okay, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So verse 11 is straight Old Testament. First, he says, woe to them. That's judgment language. If you know the prophets, this is how they taught when God called them to speak oracles of judgment against enemy nations, even against God's people in their sin. It's what the prophets would say about those cursed by God. Woe to them. He's talking about the people who have crept into the church, the people who have infiltrated, who don't have good intentions. And then Jude brings up three famous, I guess you could say villains, from Old Testament history. But the way he brings them up is interesting. Notice there are three verbs associated with them. They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, There's something weird going on here grammatically, okay? Because Jude is writing centuries after these people lived and died, right? Jude, he is in the Bible, but he's in the New Testament. He's after Jesus. Cain is like way back at the beginning of human history. And Korah and Balaam are way back in the day as well. Centuries separate them. So how could these people that Jude is writing about, how could they have walked in the same way as Cain, or walked with Cain? How could they have especially perished themselves in Korah's rebellion, past tense? How could this be? Well, in Greek, he's not using the English past tense. Okay, He's using what's known as the aorist tense. Now, you don't have to remember that. Okay, Maybe someday we can unpack that a little bit. But just understand that he's using the grammar to make a point. He's basically saying that these false teachers, what they're doing, it's timeless. He's connecting inextricably what these false teachers are doing in his day with what people have done to mess up in the past, in the distant past. He's basically saying, we've seen this all before. We'll see it again. It's the same type of pattern. There's nothing new under the sun. Walked like Cain, abandoned themselves like Balaam, and then ultimately perished like Korah and those who followed him. Now, Let's break this down. First, they walked in the way of Cain. You guys know Cain, right? He might be the most famous of these three. Cain was the first human being who was ever born. Okay, he was the oldest son of Adam and Eve, but he's not just known for that, okay? What he's mostly known for is being the first murderer. Okay, he killed his brother Abel in cold blood. And then we have Balaam. If anything, you might remember Balaam for his donkey. That's the most famous story. That's another story for another time. But Balaam is one of the more interesting people in the scriptures, one of the hardest really to put your finger on. In fact, if you have been reading the Bible in a year, maybe you've read the story of Balaam, and it's not even quite uh, obvious to at first read if he's good or bad. Okay, there's kind of both. There's some moral grayness to him. He wasn't from Israel, but he knew Israel's God well. You could even call him a prophet. And what Judah's bringing up is when Israel was about to enter the promised land, this enemy king hired Balaam because he knew he had legit spiritual authority. He actually knew Yahweh in some sense. He hired him to curse Israel. So Balaam, right, eventually he goes to do this. He goes to curse Israel and he opens his mouth to curse and only blessing comes out. And this happens a number of times. God literally directs his words. He doesn't let him speak any words of curse, just blessing. And then we have Korah's rebellion. And I want to actually look at this one real quick. Look at number 16, fourth book of the Bible, number 16. If you could turn there, Numbers chapter 16. Keep your place in Jude. It's not that hard to find Jude, but number 16. This is an important story. It'll help us, I think, understand why he goes to these three examples in the first place. 
Numbers chapter 16, look at verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Okay, verse 2. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Okay, so they get all these people who are leaders. They assemble themselves, verse 3, together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? What's going on here? Some of the more important people in the assembly of Israel, while they're wandering in the wilderness, mind you, they rise up against Moses and Aaron, who are the leaders. They say, why are you guys the leaders? What's so special about you? We're all Israelites. We're all God's people. Why shouldn't some of us Share the low, share the authority. Why shouldn't we be in charge? This is Korah's rebellion. They rise up against Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 28. Skip down. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. I didn't even want to be the leader. That's what Moses is saying. God made me the leader. Verse 29. If these men die as all men die, he's speaking to everyone now. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, they die in old age, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belong to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised, notice, not me, but the Lord. Verse 31, and as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. You could stop there. God himself right away puts down the rebellion. It couldn't be clearer. Exactly what Moses said happened. So what's the lesson here? I see some sin in these examples, right? I I see murder with Cain. I see cursing or trying to curse with Balaam. I see uh, rebellion with Korah. But what is the pattern? What what am I supposed to see here? Well, look back at verse 8 and number 16. I want to point out something in Korah's rebellion in between the rebellion and the perishing. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you? that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, verse 10, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? He's saying... Is it not enough for you that God has blessed you so much with the authority and honor that you do have? You're not really mad at me. You're mad at God. That's who you have a problem with. And again, Moses and Aaron didn't even want to lead. If you read the first five books of the New Testament, one thing that will become very clear is that being the leader of the people of Israel was not an easy job. People were always hating on Moses, day in and day out. But God called him. Verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you shall, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So basically what's going on is Moses wants to talk. He doesn't just call for judgment right away. He says, let's talk this out. They say no. There's an opportunity for repentance and reconciliation. They refuse. Now you can go back to Jude. Let me tell you a story, a familiar one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sound familiar? He created man, male and female, in his image. He placed them in a garden called Eden to live. And everything was theirs except God warned them. He said, there is one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of the fruit of this tree on that day, you will surely die. Now, they knew this. And yet one day a snake slithered into Eve's presence and he spoke to her. Now, we know that the snake was not an ordinary snake. It was Satan. And this made it all the more dangerous. 
But the thing is, this snake's venom, it wasn't in its bite, okay? It was in its words. The snake slithered up to Eve and said, did God really say that you can't eat of this tree, that it's dangerous, that you'll die if you eat the fruit? He injected doubt into her thinking. Why would God say that? God must be hiding something from you. God doesn't have your best interests in mind, or how could he if he tells you to do this? Don't you know he can't be trusted? And you probably know how the story ends. She took of the fruit, she ate it, gave some to Adam, her husband, he ate it, and the slow poison of sin seeped into their very souls and into the world, leading to all the misery and pain and death that we experience even to this day. Now, Jude uses these three examples on purpose. There's a progression in the pattern. First, Cain. Yes, he murdered Abel, but you got to understand why. Like, what happened there? One day, he and his brother Abel, they both offered sacrifices to God. This was a good thing. They were worshiping God And yet God, he accepted Abel's and he rejected Cain's. And the details are sparse in the Genesis account. But if you look at like 1 John 3, it says that Cain's works were evil and Abel's were righteous. There was something about Cain's offering that was off or twisted. It was wrong in some way. So God calls him out on this and Cain gets really angry. But Cain doesn't kill Abel at first. God speaks to Cain. He says sin is crouching at the door. Don't open it, basically. You have a choice here. You can let your anger lead to something even worse, or you can turn away. God speaks to Cain, and what does Cain do? He refuses to heed the word of the Lord, and he kills his brother. Then what about Balaam? He knew who God was, and when he tried to curse Israel the first time, God literally didn't let him do it. He put blessing in his mouth instead of cursing, and yet what did he do? He kept trying to curse Israel. And you know why this is? If you read the story again, it's because Balak, the king, he offered him a ton of money. That's why Jude says he abandoned himself. He abandoned what he knew to be true. He actually knew God in some way. He abandoned that for gain, for evil gain, for selfish gain. And we read elsewhere that Israel actually did end up getting cursed. Okay, not by Balaam's words, but by Balaam's plan. Balaam couldn't curse Israel with his words. So what did he do? He told Balak about how the law of God would bring curses upon them if they just turned away from God. And they had some women infiltrate the camp, I guess, and seduce some of the guys and marry them. It was a long game. And they turned the people of Israel away from God, some of the men, and these people started worshiping false gods instead. And they brought the curses of the law upon themselves. And Balak was punished for that. And then Korah, his grumbling wasn't against Moses. Moses never wanted to be leader. It was against what God himself had spoken. See, the pattern is, and it's been the same since the garden. Did God really say? And then you turn away. It always starts with the rejection of what God has said. When you walk in that like Cain, when God says, stop before you go any further and you say, I'm just going to keep going. When you harden your heart and double down on the wrong path, even though you know it's wrong, you end up where you never thought you could be. And it leads to you being like Balaam, where you just keep going down the wrong way. You keep just going past every stop sign. You abandon yourself. Then, of course, where does this lead? It leads into the pit. Like with Korah, you pay the price. Jude is pointing out that all false teaching and false teachers, they follow a similar pattern that's rooted in a rejection of the truth. Ultimately, it's rooted in a rejection of God and his word. See, there's a common thread, and it's always about turning away from what the clear word of God says, whether it's a warning or a command or a principle. A good way to know if you should trust somebody or if you should follow them or hear what they have to say or change your life because of what they're telling you is to look and see if they're really on God's side or not. The way you'll know this is how they respond to the truth of God's word personally. And I don't just mean that they, you know, use the Bible in their teaching. Every false teacher uses the Bible verse to try to get you. A lot of people use the Bible to justify their own actions. What I mean is, do they listen to the Bible when it contradicts 
what they feel like doing in the moment, like Cain, or when it goes against what they're tempted to want more than anything, like Balaam. He wanted that money, but God said no. Or even when they have good arguments, logically, like Korah. We are God's people too. It doesn't make sense. When someone says, look, I'm working on this new thing. I know it's taking a lot of time away from family and church and some of these important things and really everything in my life. But if I put in the hours now, what I've been told is, I'll only have to work five hours a week for the rest of my life and I'll be making millions okay, every month. That kind of thing is very tempting to human beings, right? You don't have to work as hard later. You can spend a lot of time doing what you want to do. You'll have a lot of money. You won't have to worry. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with not having to work super hard all the time or even having a lot of money. That's not in of itself evil. When you know it becomes evil is when that person doesn't want to hear any kind of warning or correction anymore. Okay? When you say, uh, I mean, you're not really, you know, spending time with your kids. Don't you think you need to, like, pull back a little bit? And and they're like, no, 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 no. Right? I, I don't need to do that. I, I'm doing, you know, like, when they respond in a very negative and antagonistic way. And when you warn them too much, like, don't you think maybe you're focusing a little too much on money? And they get all offended and, and walk away from you. Do they scoff? That's when you know. Or do they say, you know, maybe you're right. I need to rethink some of this. Maybe I do need to spend a little bit more time with family or I need to course correct myself a little bit. Now we need to move on, but understand the pattern. It's not always someone who writes on their name tag, false teacher that you have to watch out for. It's the way that false teaching seeps into our lives and our words our thoughts. It always starts with rejecting or dismissing or minimizing the truth. That's how you can tell. Namely, God's word in some way, shape, or form. It always ends with going down and these people going down and bringing everyone who followed them along for the ride. Now, there's more to talk about, but this point was the longest. So second, the presentation. So we saw the pattern. There's a pattern of rejecting God's word. Second, the presentation. We're talking about how they present themselves. We have to understand, again, that false teachers, they don't tell us they're false teachers at the get-go. In fact, some false teachers don't even know really they're false teachers. They're so convinced of their own lies. I remember watching this cartoon when I was younger, The Justice League. I don't know if you know what that is. Superhero movies are like huge now, so people know who superheroes are. The Justice League are all the DC superheroes come together to team up to defeat the bad guys, I guess. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, these guys. Now, in this particular episode that I was watching, it was a cartoon, I was watching it years ago. The villains teamed up too. I think they called it like the Injustice League or something, not very creative like that. But in this episode, the villains teamed up, the heroes teamed up, they have these two groups, and somehow The Flash gets his body switched with Lex Luthor. Okay, now Lex Luthor, he's Superman's greatest enemy, right? his arch villain. So the Flash is in Lex Luthor's body. He's with all these other supervillains, and he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to the bathroom to make a phone call. He's going to call on his phone to Justice League and say, hey, I got my body switched. Come help me. So he goes to the bathroom, and he's trying to call, but then some villains also walk into the bathroom. So he can't call anymore. So he exits the stall. He walks out. He's trying to play it cool, trying to act like Lex Luthor, trying to calmly just make a beeline for the exit. When one of the villains, right when he's about to open the door, says, hey, wait a minute. And he's like, oh, no. They suspect something. But the guy goes, aren't you going to wash your hands? And he goes, uh, he breathes a sigh of relief. And then he turns back and he says, no, because I'm evil. And he walks out. Now, it always stuck with me how silly it was, for one, But it also kind of illustrates a point. Real villains don't actually say stuff like that. Even in cartoons, right? Lex Luthor would never say that if he was really him. Even in cartoons, they aren't that transparent about their motives. We have to grapple with this. You can't recognize false teachers because they wear like all black or something like that. The most dangerous villain is the one you don't recognize to be a villain in the first place. And there's some subjectivity to this. Some of us, we fall for some things. Some of us fall for others. But you have to be aware that false teachers to you are not always going to be obvious. 
Look at verse 12. What did you say? These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds. Okay, what is Jude talking about? Love feast sounds weird. It's not actually that weird, especially if you look in the Greek. The word for love feast here comes from the Greek word agape, which is the most common word used for love in the New Testament. And while we shouldn't make too big of a difference between the various Greek words for love in the Bible, think Christian love. Okay, the love that God has for us, not romantic love or anything like that. See, the early church, what they had were these things called love feasts. They would have regular gatherings around meals. They would get the whole church together. They would eat together. They would break bread. And at the end of this, they would actually take communion, the Lord's Supper. It wasn't just in the church service, the worship service, but it was in these full kind of full feast like meals. Okay. They would break the bread. They would drink the cup. It was special. It was powerful. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, masters, the rich, the poor, they would all get together and they would sit at the same table or recline at the same table. They would celebrate the common bond they had because of the blood of Christ. They were family. Jude says that at these special gatherings, there are hidden reefs. Now, anyone here, I don't know if you have a different translation. I'm sure someone here has one where it actually says blemishes at your love feast. Anyone see that? Or spots or something like that. The reason why some translations have that is because the Greek word can actually mean both a reef or a blemish. But contextually speaking, the historical and textual context would favor hidden reefs. Okay. So the idea here is of like coral underneath the surface of the sea, right? Ready to tear up the hull of an unsuspecting ship, causing it to get stuck or grounded. Now, hold that thought. Okay, the reason why I think textually it fits better here is because the next image is of shepherds feeding themselves and then of waterless clouds. Both of these next two images have to do with the difference between presentation, how they look or appear, and reality, how they really are. See, in the ancient world, rain was so necessary for life. You needed it to grow uh, crops for food. And so dark rain clouds were a blessing. If you saw them on the horizon, you knew that they were bringing rain, which was necessary for your life. And yet he's saying that they are waterless clouds. They're dark clouds that look like they're going to bring rain, but they don't bring anything. I think if we live in North Texas, we kind of get that, right? Every day it says there's a 60% chance of rain and then it doesn't rain. These people are waterless clouds. They look like they'll be a blessing, but they aren't what they appear. And then I skipped over it. Shepherds feeding themselves. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the word, uh, the word pastor, it just means shepherd. Okay. So pastors, they're not religious. The, the word wasn't a religious word at first. It was actually a, a metaphor or an image taken from the fields, right? Shepherds who watched over the sheep. That's what Jesus said pastors are supposed to do. We're supposed to shepherd the flock of God. Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep. Judas talking about leaders among the people of God, influential people, people who are given authority, those who appear godly, who talk the talk, who are godly or gifted even. They are shepherds image-wise. He said they look like shepherds, and yet they only feed themselves. Now, I want to read to you from Ezekiel 34. Okay, Ezekiel 34. Listen to this. This is the passage that I think Jude is thinking about. It's very similar God calls his prophet Ezekiel to speak to his people. And, you know, talking about craziest books in the Bible, Ezekiel just might be the craziest book in the Bible. Just read it sometime and you'll know exactly what I mean. Okay, Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, no true shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. The shepherds of Israel, the people who were 
in charge of helping people, of leading people, of taking care of God's people. We're only concerned with who? With themselves. They loved eating the curds. They loved clothing themselves with the wool and slaughtering the choice animals, but didn't do what shepherds baseline are supposed to do, which is take care of the sheep. And of course, this is a metaphor. He's not talking about the actual literal shepherds who are out on the fields. He's talking about the religious leaders of Israel in that day. You know, I was just talking to future millionaire Eric over here about this. Um, but I remember when we went to seminary, we went to master's together, master's seminary, and it was a great experience overall. But I think one of the sobering and kind of scary things, maybe even disillusioning things about seminary was that there were a few guys there who clearly were not in it for the right reasons. And you kind of hoped that the professors or the administration would kind of pick it up. And I think students, as time went on, started to pick it up. I remember there was one student who was actually asked to leave because he was so prideful. But there were some people there who were only there clearly because they liked to be in charge. And I remember Eric said, it's the difference between wanting to be a pastor to serve, to serve God and to serve others, and wanting to be a pastor to lead and to be in charge. Now, I preach to myself. This is a scary thing for a preacher or a pastor, a shepherd, to even talk about. I mean, it's so easy to, to be hypocritical in this, in this way. But this is what we saw. This is what we saw. People who wanted the spotlight. People who only wanted to serve if people would see them doing it. People who wanted the honor, who wanted the perks, but didn't care about God and the people that God cared about. I mean, I even think about how sometimes I call Zoe my church or the church that I started. I'm getting kind of close to the line there, I think, when I say something like that. It's not my church, and I didn't start it. Now, back to Jude. Hopefully, your pastors are okay, okay? There are other people, though, who might cause a shipwreck in your life. There's a way to know who to stay away from, okay? It's those who are ultimately about themselves. It's people who are concerned with themselves. Notice that Jude says they feast without fear. There's no fear of God. They're not even thinking about God. They're thinking about themselves only, what they can get, what they can take away, how people are viewing them. And you won't see this right away in people. The presentation usually at first is good. They might be very gifted. They might be very charismatic. They might be people who know how to talk the talk. But if you watch them carefully enough, you will see that at the end of the day, they don't care about you. They don't care about other people. They only care about themselves. I mean, have you seen it? Have you seen this in other people? They don't want to include certain people maybe in social events because it just won't be that easy for them. There's nothing to gain from it. They don't want to serve if only a few people might show up. If it becomes clear that they aren't going to be leaders right away, or that they won't be platformed right away, or that they won't have a ton of influence, or that they have to work underneath someone else, they look for the exit real quick. I mean, you've seen this before, haven't you? This happens in every church. Now, understand, this could be true of us to a certain extent. Each of us. None of us are perfect. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. No shepherd is perfect. No one is selfless all the time. No one is completely righteous. No, not one. True believers can be led astray and can lead others astray. But this is where it's applicable to every single one of us. It's not just watching out for other people, but it's about watching out for the false teacher tendency that can grab a hold of our own hearts. All false teachers, all, all people who would take you down the wrong path, they all have this in common. They present themselves as, as good, as caring, as someone who might help you out, and yet at the end of the day, they're all about themselves. And understand this too, one more caveat and then, We'll go to the last point. Sometimes they can even teach 
sound doctrine. Paul talked about this in Philippians 1. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And Paul could praise God that they were actually preaching Christ, but they were not on God's side. It's a scary thing to think about. So watch out for those who don't seem to actually care for the people who God cares for. Watch out for those who don't care for anyone but themselves at the end of the day. And watch out for this even in yourself. Last point, quickly now, the path. The path. Sometimes you'll only see where they're going when you watch them walk for a little while. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. More images, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. The first image has to do with trees that don't have any fruit. Now, I planted a peach tree in my house or in my backyard, not in my house, but in my backyard a couple of years ago. And the thing about peach trees is it takes a couple of years for them to really start bearing fruit. And this summer, they actually started bearing some fruit, but then the squirrels ate it. I'm sure there's like some kind of sermon illustration here with that. I don't know quite what it is, but you'll hear about my fruit, uh, peach tree again, I'm sure. But the thing about trees is that they bear fruit in season. And I've seen that every season. Right In the winter, the leaves fall off. There's nothing there. The tree is dormant, but it looks like it's dead. And then in the spring, the leaves come back, and then the fruit starts coming in in the summer. Jude says they are fruitless trees in autumn. And basically what he's saying is, we've waited throughout the entire spring and summer, and there still isn't any fruit. Okay, We've given them time to show fruit. Maybe they're late bloomers. They're not. They went the whole season. They didn't bear anything, so they are twice dead and there's a little bit of speculation as to what he means here, but I think the best way to understand this is they are clearly already dead because they aren't bearing fruit. And then at the same time, they will be pulled out and will be completely dead, even from the root, because they aren't fruitful. Now, understand again, it's time here. It's seeing them over time. There is no fruit as the seasons go on. The next image, wild waves. To the Jewish mind, the sea was a treacherous place the Israelites, they weren't a seafaring people. And so to them, the sea represented chaos and danger. And this is how Jude describes it, wild waves of the sea. And then notice he says, they cast up the foam of their own shame. And if you've been to the beach ever, you know that the waves, they constantly hit the shores and they leave behind foam. And if the sea is dirty, right, if you're at a certain beach where there's a lot of pollution or something, the foam will be like all dirty and it'll be filled with kind of grime and all of that kind of stuff. What Judah's saying here is that you need to watch what these people leave behind. What kind of residue, so to speak? The shame will become apparent. The people you need to watch out for almost always have some sort of track record. And maybe they're new at this, or maybe they've been doing it for a while, but you'll see it eventually. You'll see kind of the, the miserable lives left behind, the broken relationships, the burn bridges. Everywhere they go. That's shameful behavior. And then Jude says they are wandering stars. This is super interesting in a metaphorical sense because first what he's talking about is actual stars. That's the image. Okay, the ancient, in the ancient world, people were very interested in the stars. They would map out constellations and stuff like that. They had no, a lot less pollution at least so they could see the stars more clearly. And some stars they noticed kind of had erratic paths. And some of the ones they were talking about or looking at were actually the planets, right? They were a lot closer. They looked like stars, uh, and they seemed to not follow a regular set pattern. But here's where things get interesting. Judith mentioned angels quite a bit in this letter already. And in the scriptures, star imagery is often connected with angels. They would use star kind of metaphors to talk about the angelic world. So, for example, Daniel 8.10 they talk about the host of heaven or the starry host. But they're not talking about the stars. They're talking about the angels. Even Lucifer, we talked about him last week a little bit. Satan, Lucifer's name means morning star. Okay, or star of the dawn. He was the first star. So what Jude is doing here, I think, is kind of a layered metaphor. He's not just talking about angel, uh, stars in the sky that are kind of wandering, but he's actually calling back to angels that have wandered. He's talked about angels a lot in this text. He's talking about they leave the path of walking with God. 
These people leave the path just like the angels before them have left the path. And where does it lead? It leads to the gloom of utter darkness forever. See, he says, follow where they're going. Look at the path that they're on and then understand that it doesn't lead to a good place. Where false teachers are going isn't good. See, what all false teachers have in common, it's not even a platform. There are some false, there's some cult leaders who have like two followers. Okay, they're not really that dangerous to the broader public. People just don't like them. But what all false teachers have in common is that they're on a bad path. And if you follow them, this is kind of where Jude is going. If you follow them, then you will also end up in the same place. In fact, I, I was, when I was writing this, I was thinking about one of the biggest pastors in America a few years ago, Rob Bell. And I wouldn't normally name names, but I think Rob Bell is a very clear case. Rob Bell, he's not a pastor anymore, but he still teaches a lot. He's on speaking tours. I don't even know if he would claim to be a Christian at this point. Now, you might not remember him, but about 25 years ago or so, he started one of the fastest growing churches in America called Mars Hill. Not Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill, but a different Mars Hill up in Michigan. And it was like blowing up. And, you know, Rob Bell was a very interesting teacher. And I mean that in a literal sense, like people love listening to him teach. He would not just teach fluff. He wouldn't just do like self-help or give a lot of emotional stories. He would open up the Bible. He would get into the Greek and the Hebrew. It was very different than what most people were doing. He talked about history and culture and the ancient Greek world and stuff like that. He would do it without notes and he would just talk and talk. And he, he knew so much. He learned so much. Apparently someone even said, I remember that his sermons were like works of art. And the first sermon series that he ever did at Mars Hill, he was famous for this, growing a megachurch by preaching through Leviticus. Okay, it, it inspired me, honestly. But James and Eric stopped me. They said, you think you're Rob Bell? He got canceled, I guess you could say, when his book, Love Wins, came out a few years ago. It was a book basically about how there's no such thing as hell. Kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of people because they like Rob Bell. But he said, there's no such thing as hell. Everyone's going to heaven because love. And when people asked him, like, what about Jesus's teachings about hell? Or even what Jude says about like utter darkness and things like this, he just dismissed it. You don't really understand anything. You don't know uh, stuff like I do. He ended up leaving his church. Now you'd hardly recognize anything he's teaching as Christian. But you know, I, I went back after this and I downloaded his old Leviticus series. And it's honestly pretty good. And the first sermon that he ever preached from Leviticus, no joke, this is what he said. He said, there are two paths. One leads to heaven and one leads to hell. And the only way to go on the right path is to follow Jesus. The current Rob Bell wouldn't even recognize and vice versa, the old Rob Bell. The old Rob Bell was so different than the current one, he'd hardly recognize him. And yet it didn't happen overnight. If you follow his ministry, if you look at the history, even his teaching, how it morphed and changed, it really started, I think, with him wanting to be on the cutting edge. He wanted to be innovative. He wanted to teach things that people hadn't heard before. And at first he was teaching the Bible, but as time went on, he wanted to find new things to teach, things that were more interesting, things that weren't right, but they were new. And as time went on, he led himself astray. See, the thing is, the best salesmen truly believe in what they're selling. You guys know this. So watch the trajectory. Sometimes false teachers, their first victim is themselves. So maybe don't just watch them, but watch where they're headed. If you follow them, if you get entangled up with them, if you kind of tie your life to them, where will it lead you? If they're going overboard, then you're going to go overboard with them. So, before we close, this wasn't exactly the most hopeful text in the world. Jude so far hasn't been the most hopeful or joyful letter. But if you have eyes to see, especially in our verses today, you might have noticed that there is a lot that we can be thankful for. These verses should have reminded us, by way of contrast, should have reminded us uh not just to recognize what's false, but also to remember what's true. See, 
the reason I went to Mark 10 for our scripture reading is twofold. Okay, one is that, is that he's specifically called what in that text by James and John? They call him teacher. But Jesus wasn't a false teacher. Okay, Jesus was the true and better teacher, the one good teacher. And Jesus, what did he teach his disciples? He said the teachers, the rulers, the leader, leaders of this world, they all basically want one thing. They want to be served. They lord it over other people. They love having the authority, but he says it should not be so among you because even me, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give. Jesus didn't reject the word of God. He fulfilled it. Unlike Cain, he never gave into temptation. And rather than kill, he sacrificed himself in love. Unlike Balaam, he chose to become poor so that many could become rich in salvation. Unlike Korah, he submitted to the will of God until the end, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the light of the world, and all who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus doesn't make false promises. Jesus doesn't need your money. In fact, he doesn't actually need you at all. But the good news of the gospel is that God in Christ makes an appeal to us to be reconciled. He doesn't need us, but he loves us and he wants a relationship with us. We'll close here. Someone just reminded me of the film Catch Me If You Can earlier this week. And if you don't know it, it tells the true story, or it's based on the true story of Frank Abagnale Jr. And Frank was a con artist, one of the most famous con artists of all time, a scammer. And he, through check fraud and different things, through lies, he he basically earned or stole millions upon millions of dollars. And what kind of makes the story fun for a movie is that he successfully pretended to be an airline pilot. He was in planes. He pretended to be a doctor. He pretended to be a lawyer. This was all in the 60s. But he was one of the most successful, quote-unquote, con men of all time. And he evaded and dodged authorities for years, but eventually he was caught. And he was arrested and put in jail by Tom Hanks. Not really Tom Hanks, but the character Tom Hanks played. The thing about Frank, though, is that he turned a new leaf. This is what also makes his story interesting. In jail, and after he got out, he started working for the authorities that caught him as a consultant. And the thing about him was he was such a good con man, such a good fraudster and scammer, that he could see through almost every single scam right away. He could tell just by looking at it if a check was fake because he had faked so many. He was better at faking than these other guys. And through him, countless crimes were solved and prevented. The scammers started stopping the scammers. The thing about this text is, yes, Jude does want us. He does want us to know how to discern when people are trying to pull one over us when people are trying to scam us, to lead us astray. But as we've broken down this text, maybe you've seen that some of the things that false teachers are known for are things that maybe we struggle with too, if we're being honest. Being selfish, only thinking about ourselves, even using people for our own selfish ends sometimes. So there's a double hope in this text. Not only can we learn to grow in our powers of discernment, so that we could evade false teaching. But at the same time, we could grow to be different, that we could walk a different path than false teachers, that we don't have to follow them and how they live because of Jesus. He can change us. And if we follow him, he can lead us down the right path and he can help us and use us to point others in the same direction. And we can live our lives pointing the world to him, our great teacher, our great savior. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. It's a light in the darkness. It convicts us, but it also builds us up. God, will you use this book of Jude in our church, in our lives? God, will you help us to grow in discernment, but also 
to grow in grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.